My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I am joined by academic agent. Uh, He is an internet renaissance man and one of the most prolific and successful content producers on the dissident right. Welcome, A. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm very happy that you've agreed to come on. I've been uh, a fan of your work for a long time. Uh, I remember, I think it was a, a few years ago, I stumbled upon a video that you made about Sadiq Khan. <laughs> I've noticed recently <laughs> there are many videos about Sadiq Khan on your channel uh, because I was living in London and I was um, confused <laughs> about what was going on in London. And mm-hmm. it seemed to me that you had an explanatory framework that was pretty much up my up my alley. So um, what was your political journey? Because I feel like that that was, a, you know, AA from a few years ago. You are now on a different in a different space? Like, what were the steps that you took to, to get where you are? I mean, the, the first thing I'll say is that um, any, um, the, the, if anybody is like um, in the audience of my channel, it's a bit of a, a long-running in-joke in a way that uh, whenever I needed a few more subs, I would make a Sadiq Khan video. <laughs> so the Sadiq Khan was kind of like, it was almost like bait to get in like normie viewers. And obviously it worked because you... You, you came in from the city Khan, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, a disgruntled London uh, viewer, but yes, indeed, relatively gourmet for sure. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that uh, I think a lot of us have been on a on a journey. Um, I would say that um, uh, my the reason I made a channel was because. Um, Back in 2016, it really felt like the, the the sky was falling in from a certain perspective. Um, the Brexit vote had just happened. Um, now, a, a, a lot of people won't know that I voted Remain. <laughs> I didn't vote Leave. I voted Remain in that. Um, now, my my reasons for ro- voting Remain were a bit cynical. I was in the process of selling my flat um, and buying a place, and um, I believe that. The Brexit vote would adversely affect the price, <laughs> so I, I voted Remain for that reason. Um, but but also I um, uh, I I will admit I listened to a speech by David Cameron, um, who who basically uh, suggested that um, the you know to maintain peace in Europe that if uh, if we voted for Brexit we'd, we'd have a war. Or whatever, and I, I just kind of last minute was persuaded by that, um, which is uh, something that my wife has never forgiven me for actually, because she yeah. she was she also went along with with that, and she was leading the other way, and she kind of liked Nigel Farage and that sort of stuff uh, back then, um, and then uh, and then of course the Trump, and then of course later that that same year the Trump thing happened, and um, one of the uh, the things that really shocked and alarmed me was the 
the reaction to the Brexit vote in the UK. Um, because it was like, okay, well, the vote has happened now. It doesn't matter if you which way you voted. You have to accept the result, right? You have to... And I had never seen um, the the system and uh, what we today would call the, the elites in the system um, have this kind of tantrum, this... I mean, it was just the level of emotion and the level of hysteria um, following that result and and hatred towards the the people who voted leave um, was something that immediately made me think there's something wrong there's something wrong going on here and I better part I better start paying closer attention um, now before that I wouldn't say that I was ever left wing or particularly liberal but I was um, how can I put this uh I was just more invested in cultural things, you know, like music, films, um, you know, stuff like pro wrestling. You know, I just pay attention to other things to a, to the same sort of obsessive level uh, that people have come to expect on my channel. But effectively, I was not very I was not very political in that sense. Um, I did know a few things, though, politics wise. For example, um, I knew I hated The Guardian. Like, I'd, I'd, I always hated that sort of virtue signaling left winger. And I, I knew that from a very early age. So when people talk about um, politics as a kind of disposition, a kind of, it, it's something in your personality that pushes you to be one way or the other. In my heart of hearts, I was probably always, you know, a man of, a man of the right. Um, but to be honest though for a long time there wasn't that much reason to be that checked in you know it was just like i mean i remember joking with colleagues i was like oh maybe one day we could see a cartoon election of like boris johnson in a in a top hat um and a monocle against jeremy corbyn you know like a flat cap and a, you know because it seemed so cartoonish from the point of view of where we had been which was this kind of blairite miasma you know, I always remember the 2010 election we had Gordon Brown, Nick Clegg, and David Cameron, which was basically three flavors of Tony of Tony Blair. So this event in 2016 made me start, like, when I start to get interested in something, I, I, I never just get interested, like, a little bit. I want to know the full picture and go all in. All like all the way, so I started reading a lot. Um, and one of the most influential books on my trajectory that I that I read at that time was um, "The Abolition of Britain" by Peter Hitchens, where he basically explained that like Tony Blair was not like I had just previously thought. Well, Tony Blair, you know, he's a he's probably quite a sensible politician. You know, he, he looks at what works and he's a pragmatist and, um, you know, he, he, he was the sensible center of politics. And if you read this book, uh, by, by Hitchens, he turns that view on his head and he's like, actually, no, Blair is a, is a radical and almost a psychopath. Right. And, and anybody knows who knows my channel will know I've always had this special interest in Tony Blair since, because, the way Peter Hitchens describes it, Britain 
and de Blair experienced something like the Chinese cultural revolution only without the bloodshed. Like you wouldn't know that this has happened, but it has happened. So everything that we thought that was British and normal and so on was quietly being, you know, overturned by Blair. And in many ways, um, certainly in Britain, we're still living, we're still, the culture is still catching up to all of those changes that Blair made um, at a time where most people like me weren't really paying attention or um, there wasn't like this focus on politics during the Blair years. And he did a lot of things uh, without any debate, without any, like it was like uh, he just announced, oh, we, we, you know, I remember that one of the things in the news at that time was that Blair made a lot of decisions behind closed doors, you know. Um, and so, so that really was the, was the me reading Peter Hitchens' Abolition of Britain was really the start of my true like journey to like be on the on the right of things properly. Even if I had this kind of vague disposition before that, if I'm honest, it wasn't until that point. Um, the other, the other book that I read that really had a profound impact on me back then was, um, vision, the vision of the anointed by Thomas Sowell. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with that book, um, where, where, I mean, it's hard to explain to people, but there are so many things in growing up in Britain in the nineties and, um, you know, two thousands that you never think about, okay? Like, so for example, um, something like gun rights, like should you, the right to bear arms. Up until that point, I'd, had, I'd never had any reason even to think about it. It was just common sense. Of course you ban guns, you know, more, you know, you just, it's just not a question. And in our, like, in our politics and our media and so on, a question like that is, is, it was almost treated like it's settled. This is just settled. There's no debate on that. It's just a, it's just the received wisdom. And when I picked up Thomas Sowell, it was like, oh, this is the first time I have ever even come across the pro-gun argument. And he was presenting data and he was presenting stats and he was, you know, and it was like, um, in, in many ways, it was like a knife through butter. It was like, holy shit, this guy's really talking to me because he is, he's a realist. He is talking, you know, he, everything he says is a fact. Um, and like, what's the, you know, what's the liberal comeback on all of these points, you know? So, um, and the, the other thing that Sowell does in that book is that he gives this almost perfect portrait of who the left are. It's, I mean, it remains to this day. I mean, people may, these days, may they may cringe at somebody like Thomas Sowell because, you know, he's a bit libertarian and all the rest of it. But I, I still think that a lot of his books have value for his skewering of who the left are, how they think, how they argue, uh, the pattern. You know, he does this thing in The Vision Anointed where he talks about the patterns of the left where they, they create a crisis, they come up with a solution, then the solution does the exact opposite of what they promise, and then after the fact they move the goalposts of what the, of what the goal was. I mean, all of these things remain useful, I think, for us to think about. Um, 
and then of course you go through different stages like well you come to see the enormity of the problem so one of the biggest things i think that a lot of people have have realized now i mean it's 2022 now but which was not clear back then to a lot to to all but the the people who came from you know the fringes like the you know the the true far right or anything like there are some people who whose journey in was that way but for most of us who was just coming from just normie life and hadn't really been paying attention and so on um we always just thought well there are two parties the conservative party is the right wing party and the the labor party is the left wing party well i mean the other thing that peter hitchens shows you is that actually the conservatives have no interest in being conservative. They have not conserved anything and they have done this consistently for hundreds of years. So when Peter Hitchens was like, the best thing that can happen for the country is for the Tory party to be destroyed, um, I started to realize like this whole system is, it's fake, right? It's like, a, it's like, I mean, I mentioned like in wrestling, right? There's a good side and a bad side. And it's predetermined that the that the eventually the baddie, the heel, will take a loss, you know, because it's scripted. Um, and I came to realize, well, hold on. Politics is like like the the role of the conservatives in the system is just to continually take losses, and we're meant to just cheer that on. And the media frames everything in that way. And that's how everybody is that's just the the de facto mode. So um you know, after a while, people were like, well, you've got to read this good, you know, Mencius Mulberg, for example. And he points a lot of this stuff out, you know, the the inner party and the outer party and the cathedral and all of that sort of stuff. I know, again, it's 2022 now, so a lot of people are like, well, you know, Curtis Yarvin, he's a bit cringe and all of this. But I, I think I think it's easy to underestimate all of those things which seem so obvious to us now were not obvious back in 2017, 2018, or, or whenever, you know, and to pretend otherwise is just, um, would just be lying. Like, I know people like, everybody likes to have this position where all of these things are obvious, but they're not obvious. Um, you ha- Like the process we've been all through is a peeling back of how the system works and coming to understand like the depth of the problem. Um, and, and then of course, it's like, well, what do you do about it? And um, I think, I mean, I have cycled through many different possible solutions. You know, a lot of people, like I did a lot of economics on my channel. A lot of people uh, will know Academic Agent as a as a libertarian economics channel because I did a lot of Austrian economics. But that was also me looking for like, well, how, what's the way out of this? And those guys had free, you know, the free market as a solution. but since going through that and reading all the literature and going all the way, you know, you come to realize that actually there's no, there's no aspect of this system that is free market. Like the, the whole frame of capitalism versus socialism is just another, like it's just another lie. Um, there is no, there is no free market, um, in, in the West and there hasn't been for a, for a very long time. Um, you know, this is this is to say nothing about whether the Austrians are correct or not. That's a whole separate debate. But, you know, it just kind of shows you that, you know, there, there used to be, people used to say, say things like, um, 
you know, go woke, go broke. You know, the, the market, you know, the free market will fix this. The the, the sheer, um, you know, the, the, their strength in consumer power, you know, the people power coming from at the consumer level is going to sort all this out. So don't worry, bro. Um, but, you know, I came to see pretty quickly that that is just not true. And, you know, it took, a, you know, it took, a, I didn't come to that realization straight away, but by the time I was reading the elite theorists in 2018, um, you know, through Moldbug and uh, the kind of NRX crowd, I always thought, well, you know, those guys are, are a good gateway into reading the stuff underneath, you know, like Moldbug is a gateway into Mosca, Pareto, um, Juvenel, Schmidt, all, all of these, all of these other thinkers who give you the kind of meat behind, you know, his, his kind of, um, synthesis if you want. Um, and, um, you know, I came to see that the free the market is not going to fix this. Um, I also came to see that, so, okay, right. So if there's not a market, if there's not going to be a solution from the market, could the solution come from politics, right? Um, will it be as simple as taking over one of the parties, taking over the Tory party or taking over the GOP as Donald Trump did? And we'll just do it through voting. Yeah, we'll vote them out, right? But then we came to see that um, the system, uh, democracy, voting, none of these things are going to work either. There is no political solution. Now, again, I came, I came to see that in 2018 in theory, through the elite theorists, through, um, I mean, if you follow the libertarian reading, you eventually reach Hans Hermann Hopper and democracy, the God that failed. Um, and you come to see that the entire democratic system is a sham. Right. You know, that Peter Hitchens thing of like the Tory party needs to be destroyed. It's not just that the entire, like they're not going to allow a dissident party to run period. Okay. And then all of those things that people like me and Charlemagne and other like Aaron McIntyre and so on, we've been saying these things for, you know, good number of years. Um, and then the 2020 election happened in America which I mean I don't know what you're allowed to say on your on this show, but uh, let's just say there are question marks over that election um, and the scale of it and the blatant like the, just how blatant it was and the entire system working in lockstep basically to fortify an election in favor of this decrepit old man Joe Biden um, demonstrated in practice what we had been saying in the we actually got to see our theory of the system come to life and i think seeing things in reality not just written down in a book uh, is relevant as well so i think 2020 basically like closed off the possibility of voting our way out of this it, it just showed us the extent to which this system is rigged and it is rigged against us. It's rigged against conservatives. It's rigged against people who want, who do not want to sign up to the rainbow flag vision of the world. And then, I mean, 
since then, even more insane things have happened. I mean, the pandemic, the the level of censorship around the pandemic, the extremity of the lockdowns, the um, you know the uh, making pariahs of uh, of the of, of people who who do not want to you know get the vaccine, um, and the you know the fucking Black Lives Matter in the middle of uh, in the middle of all of that. You know, oh, we're all locked down. Um, uh, now people can riot and loot things in the street, but it's all right because the experts have said that, like somehow, uh, if you're if you're you know marching for social justice, it's not going to be a super spreader event. And then literally a week later, super spreader event with the with the anti lockdown crowd. You know, so we were seeing the system, all of these things that people like Schmidt or Paul Gottfried. Uh, or Sam Francis talk about in theory, we were watching them come to life. We were watching the entire system weaponized, you know, and the ratchet effect. You know, we we we've gone from, you know, first it's Alex, first it's like um, neo Nazis like Andrew Anglin and Stormfront who get deplatformed. Then it's then it's Alex Jones who's not allowed to have a bank account. Then it or 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 a, or a YouTube channel or a Twitter account or then it's like now. Then it ramps up again to um, you know the president of the USA, Donald Trump, is banned from Twitter, not allowed to have a presence. His speeches. Now, don't forget, he was giving speeches as the president, and they were being censored in real time on YouTube. They were pulling them down. He wasn't allowed to have a voice. You know, they were trying to they were trying to do the same thing to him. And he's still in this weird state where Donald Trump only exists on the internet in these weird statements that people like copy and paste, you know? Um, and then, and now we've reached the absurd level to bring us back up to 2022, where it's the entire country of Russia that is uh, getting the Alex Jones treatment. So, I mean, I, I think it's, the insanity of the past few, like we talk about a journey intellectually, but there's also been the journey of what's happened in the world and they just come thick and fast. It's like we live in a permanent state of like shell shock and crisis um, because the elites uh, are like a kind of abusive, <laughs> like a kind of abusive teacher or something. And we are just kind of, uh, permanently living in this like horrible psyop um i mean i, I don't know about you I, did you ever see that film sliding doors like years ago that that the, there's a there's a film called sliding doors where this woman has this like two paths in front and you know whether she i think it's whether she makes it into the sliding doors or not all the rest of her life changes from that moment okay um, and in one story, she's like, I think she's happy and there was, uh, you know, everything turns out great. And in the other story, it's like the bad, it's like the bad ending, you know? And it, it really feels to me like since, since that time, since, since the Brexit and Trump, it's like the entire world has stepped through those sliding doors and we are in some bizarre, like alternate reality that we're not, that we're never waking up from. Um, it is, uh, I still, I still sometimes wonder, like, 
you know, we're never going to go back to the world that we knew in 2014, you know, um, for, be- for better or for worse. So I don't know how that, how does that accord with your journey? Like how, how many of those things uh, do you recognize? Um, quite, quite a lot of them. Um, Thomas Sowell was definitely a, a key ingredient. Uh, I read a lot of Peter Hitchens as well. Um, Moldbug to me. Yeah. Actually, Nick Land. Nick Land was the first thing I found that was completely disruptive. And because Nick Land probably refers to Moldbug every, every second paragraph, I had to see what Moldbug was about. And, and then I read uh, Unqualified Reservations. And from then on, I, I, you know, looked at the, the Moldbug reading list. Like you said, you know, Burnham was really important to me. Um, Burnham. Yeah. yeah. The Machiavellians, which I mean, to be honest, I haven't, you know, after reading the Machiavellians, three times and making sure I understood it all. I didn't go on to, to read Moscow and Pareto and all of that. I was like, okay, I think I got the gist of this, but it's, uh, you know, and that's why, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a viewer of all of these channels, like, you know, the distributist, uh, Aaron McIntyre. And I rely on the, on the kind work of all these wonderful YouTubers to, to summarize some of these works. Um, so yeah, that, that's pretty much the direction I went in as well. Um, and yeah, I was also fairly libertarian, fairly, uh, you know, I, I watched all of your videos on uh, Austrian economics and uh, that was also mm-hmm. kind of a, an important part of, of my uh, education. So that was really helpful as well. Um, to me, it feels like all of that is perfectly correct in, in a vacuum on a paper napkin. You know, it's, they have the best math. It makes, makes sense outside of the world of power, which is a world we actually live in. So power is the distortion field in which the math breaks down. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much, yeah, <laughs> I would say at least 50% uh, on the money. Yeah. Um, I, I should have mentioned James Burnham's Machiavellians because again, in my, in my own journey, that was a profound, um, I mean, you said disruptive, that was like all the gears reading the Machiavellians was like all the gears come to a halt because Burnham and the elite theorists, um, but, you know, the way Burnham lays it out in Machiavellians, at the time, if you have any lingering liberal assumptions, basically, he basically just destroys them. Like, over the course of one, like, it's just like the biggest black pill. Like, from the, viewed from the point of view of, like, 2017, say, but Burnham is just this giant, you know, unconquerable black pill that you take. And it's, I mean, it does have very profound consequences, I think, for your worldview afterwards. Um, And um, I still, I mean, you know, I've just released my course, uh, Foundations of Politics, um, where I go through uh, the elite theory in some detail. And, um, you know, people, people like increasingly accuse me of being like too black pilled or nihilist and all this sort of stuff. But you have to face reality, uh, the reality of power. And I have come to the view, for, you know, for right or for wrong, that the only way out of this situation with these particular elites um, is either to overthrow them or for the system to collapse. And then we, you know, we hope for uh, a group led by us essentially to take over in the aftermath. Um, when I say us, I don't mean me. I'm just a scholar, of course, not a political activist, but uh, you know what I'm saying, right? People with our sorts of ideas. Um, and, and of course, the, 
if you take Burnham and Robert Michels and uh, these sorts of people seriously, you know that the only path to power is through tight organization. There's no way of achieving power just by like riling up the masses. And I think that this, if, if the conservative right have got anything wrong, that's probably the biggest thing. This idea that um, all, you know, do you remember everybody would take, oh, of course, there'll be a tipping point at some point. Enough When enough people wake up, when enough people take the red pill, there'll be this critical moment where it will spill over. And as if by magic, you know, suddenly the conservative majority will find themselves in power. But that's not how power works and never has. I mean, power is always wielded by a tightly organized minority group against a disorganized mass who they can pick off one by one by one by one. And um, until everybody, and I mean everybody on our side, gets that message and then works towards becoming a vanguard, almost like Leninist group, right? Um, we have no, we just have no shot whatsoever um, in, a, in, in achieving power. And um, I mean, the truth is, unless you're, unless you're kind of working towards an end like that, you might as well be watching this as a kind of dark entertainment. You know, they, there's nothing else to it, really. Um, and uh, okay, I mean, yeah, maybe this great. If this is your entertainment, great. Um, but if you're going to be serious, being part of something organized um, is the is the is the action that you can take, I suppose. Um, now, now the problem is, is that the system, uh, the regime, if you want, is extremely adept at breaking up organized groups. You know, they infiltrate them with feds. They, uh, you know, paint a target on your back. They zero in on any organization whatsoever. Um, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get hit pieces against you. You'll probably get police knocking at your door. So the challenge for us is to, is to work towards this end, I suppose, without attracting all of that attention to do it in a way that is underground enough, um, and possibly at first decentralized enough that it's not going to attract all of that. Um, you know, so like the worst, like we've seen the mistakes that have been made, for example, um, one of the things that we should never do, and I hope nobody listening to the show would ever do this anyway, is um, all dress up in uniforms and fly flags, um, you know, and march in a place saying Jews will not replace us, for example. Fucking disaster. Stupid. Why would you ever do that? Um, I, would, I would much prefer uh, to see coordinated and ruthless action taken against our enemies. Okay. I mean, I, I'll give you an example, right? In the UK, we have this thing called Hope Not Hate. Have you heard of that? It's, uh... Now, every year, they run a report on dissident people from the right, typically. And it runs all the way from like neo-Nazi siege groups, right? All the way to like 
James Dellingpole and Spectator and things like that, okay? Now, wouldn't it be nice if Hope Not Hate was sued? Right? They, they put Ed Dutton in there, for example. They put Daughter of Albion in there, for example. They put James Dellingpole in there. They put, um, they even put like uh, Sargon of Akkad in there, right? All of them are in there. Hope not hate now as extremists. You know, they run these reports. Now, rather than just being sued for defamation once, why not have them face 40 or 50 lawsuits at the same time? This is the sort of organization like, and don't just target, don't target the group. Target the individual, the individual journalists who wrote those stories, the individual writers who wrote that. Did you ask permission to use my likeness? Okay. Is everything that you've said here true or is it a defamation of my character? You know, what does it mean to my business model for you to be putting me on this double page spread and you look across there and there's this guy with a SWAT sticker on his face? Why are you associating me with these things? You know, all all of these things, like they could deal with one. Could they deal with 50 is what I'm saying. Do they have unlimited resources in that way? Um, will the organization stand behind the individual writers when they're, you know, when they're facing a massive civil lawsuit. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is how the left think. The left go the left go after individuals, the left go for money, the left go through through legal channels. And and, and from what and from what I can see, people on our side don't want to think like this. But they're gonna to have to think like this. Especially because the opposition do not expect organized response. I mean what what, what that hope not hate report is is what I said. It's an organized minority picking off a mass one by one. They can pick on Dellingpole on his own or Sargon on his own or Ed Dutton on his own because they're powerless against the organize, the organization, right? But if we were organized enough to have a coordinated response that they don't see coming, okay, um, that, that sort of action could, could be powerful. Do you understand what I'm saying? And this is not, um, you know, they can deal with um, mass protest. They can deal with, uh, you know, big YouTube channels, for example, or dissident speech. They can deal with all these things. I'm not. I'm not sure if they face that sort of organized that sort of organized resistance before. And and it does have. It does have. Um, and I've seen it work in real life. Um, you know, there's a few cases I can't really get into, but I've seen what happens when, um, these people are faced with, you know, organized pushback. They don't expect it. What they're expecting everybody to do is to crumple. They expect everybody to crumple in front of their power. And when that doesn't happen, uh, they start to fall apart because these people are cowards. They're cowards. In my view, it's that sort of thing that's um that's going to have to happen the problem is is that the uh the people with those sorts of skill sets are not typically the content creators you know we've got a lot of like people like me who are academic or uh people who are you know people who like to discuss ideas who are a lot of philosophers and things like this 
but what what we what we what we need is people with these like practical skills like legal skills uh uh you know accountants money the, this sort of stuff um and that will like in an ideal world that would be the next phase but uh, i made a series of posts at the start of the at the start of the year alex where i said in my view the right just isn't serious by which i mean most people listening to this and most people who listen to me they don't really i mean they're not going to do any of that stuff then they're not serious enough to kind of um organize on that sort of level which is why which is why i increasingly say that i'm just a scholar who makes suggestions because um the more i think about it the more hopeless you know i i'm i'm prone to thinking that um there's a there's a kind of hopelessness around because people on our side of things are more interested in taking pot shots at each other and arguing over like how many angels can dance over, you know on the head of a pin rather than uniting in concerted organized pressure in that sort of way yeah yeah i i have to agree with that because uh you know just the amount of um of purity spiraling I've seen recently in the turf wars. And um, it also in a way is a, is a good sign because it feels like the, the pressure is increasing on the space because there's more attention paid to it. Um, so you essentially have gatekeeping and purity spiraling because there's something to fight over when it just was, you know, people talking in forums and, and things like that. Um, it was just a different type of atmosphere. There wasn't that much pressure. Um, but unfortunately the, the, the negative side is that, you know, there, there is, it's very hard to be big tent in these spaces uh, because, you know, there, there's something wrong with you. So I, I probably have, you know, 200 opinions where I'm exactly spot on with, with, you know, most people, but then those five, that we just don't disagree, we, we we don't agree on, that means that I have to be, you know, um, you know <laughs> exiled to the edges of the empire because I'm whatever, uh, not, not uh, yeah, not not part of the, their coalition, which is probably just like a group chat of five people. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's very hard. And I think it's also partly because a lot of people in the space still deep down buy into the framing of the left, um, especially people coming from like the, the IDW central, um, you know, complex. Yeah. They're still very much, they won't venture into these parts, not because they're not capable of doing that is that is because their moral core is still influenced by, um, you know, what you lovingly call the, the boomer truth regime, uh, which is another thing I wanted to, yeah. to discuss with you. I mean, what, what, what is the boomer truth regime? Because I feel like this is an extremely useful concept uh, and it, it illuminates this, this veil that we have around us. Um, and yeah, I, I use it all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, the boomer truth regime, came about after World War II. Um, I would say that, I mean, its genesis um, is in the Nuremberg, is it started in the Nuremberg trials, I suppose. But I, I don't think it fully cemented itself until the 1960s. Um, the 1960s was truly like the victory of boomer truth in our culture. And um, what it is, is that there's a moral paradigm uh, tr this concept of a truth regime, by, um, I've actually taken from Michel Foucault, uh, uh, who is a thinker from the left, but he has this useful concept that we live in in a kind of epistemic bubble that we can't see outside of. So if you can imagine like a medieval man, 
who believed in the great chain of being, his entire world was contained in that, in that ideological system. He wasn't aware of points of view outside of that in a way. He couldn't see outside of it. And this, the bubble that we live in is called the, the boomer truth regime. And there are certain things that are never questioned within that. But the moral paradigm is essentially the ultimate evil are the Nazis, to put it bluntly, um, as embodied in Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler is the ultimate villain in all of history, the worst man ever to, ever to live. On the flip side, the ultimate good is something like individual self-expression, as embodied in 1960s counterculture and free love and the and the and the uh, the revolution man you know um and the problem with this moral paradigm i am not i am not suggesting by the way um that the nazis weren't bad okay i'm not trying to like re- rehabilitate uh hitler that's that's i mean even if you wanted to that's probably impossible okay um at this point uh i mean i mean look at the war in Ukraine, like, I mean, it's both sides accuse each other of being Nazis. You know, it's just, it's just, you know, there's no, there's no winning that one, I'm afraid. Um, But um, this does have profound problems and consequences. Um, Bronze Age pervert has put this better than anyone that I can, that I can think of. When he says that in, in the hysterical reaction to fascism, after World War II, the Western elites have done something like chopping off half of human nature. Because it's not just, to put it frankly, the Jewish question that is put out of bounds by this kind of reaction against the Nazis. It's any step at all that they may have had as part of their world vision, you know, um, things that were actually healthy and natural and normal to all other ages are now seen as a step towards fascism. Paul Gottfried is very good on this question, by the way. He, he has two books, um, Fascism, the Career of a Concept, and Anti-Fascism, uh, is it, which, which was his latest book. And he, and he shows how profoundly damaging this concept of the anti, anti-fascism is. Um, there's another guy called Thomas777, who I think you've had on your show, who says that, the correct way to think about our ideology isn't liberal. It's not liberalism. It is anti-fascism. And once you, once you understand this, you start to see, well, now Antifa aren't these far left revolutionaries. They're the, they're the foot soldiers for the system. You know, Black Lives Matter. We're not this revolutionary group. They are, they're literally what the system wants. Um, and once you start to realize this has always been the case, especially uh, in America since, at least since FDR, possibly even going back to Wilson, but definitely since FDR, right, um, that anti-fascism is at the core of their ideological worldview more than anything else. And here fascism is an expansive term that comes to mean something like all tradition. Okay, so it's not, fascism is not just like Mussolini or Mussolini and Hitler or even Mussolini, Franco and Hitler. Fascism is 
just tradition, capital T tradition, and anything conservative whatsoever. This is why Thomas 777 says the right wing was banned after 1945. And once you start to understand these things, it starts to make sense why the post-war right became libertarian as opposed to conservative. Why, you know, the, the conservatives were reduced to just being this free market kind of, and even then it was a fake libertarianism, right? As the Mises a lot would tell you, it wasn't even Austrian economics free market. It was Chicago school, <laughs> Chicago school kind of beltway libertarianism. Um, so, um, yeah, I think understanding the boomer truth regime and the terms of the boomer truth regime is the first step to freeing, to actually freeing yourself from its world, from its worldview. And then taking, how can I put this? Like once you break free, cause it's like a mental cage. It's like a, it's like a prison. Once you break those bars open, you, you liberate your own conceptual horizon and allow yourself, allow yourself to think things that are unthinkable, that were previously unthinkable, right? And I'm, and again, I'm not talking about like becoming a fascist or anything, but I am talking about things like, well, you know, maybe individual self-expression isn't that, isn't, isn't, isn't that great a thing? Um, you know, maybe liberal values aren't, aren't all they're cracked up to be. Maybe democracy isn't all it's cracked up to be. Um, you know, maybe even being a Nazi is not the worst, not the absolute worst thing in the world that you can be. What about the traditional seven deadly sins of pride, uh, you know, d d lust, gluttony, greed, and so on? Because the more we think about Nazism as the ultimate evil, the more we forget about what actual, what actual evil is as laid down by generations and centuries of thinkers and theologians. You know, Aquinas and Augustine and all these, all these people. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. They hit on something that was essential to what it means to be human, that I think that we are losing sight of. Um, and I think the, 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 the biggest takeaway from boom, a truth regime that I would want people to take away from this is to start to understand that we have lived in the exception. We have lived in this extreme, bizarre moment in history where all of the norms are turned on there, are inverted. The, the, you know, the order has been turned upside down. Now, once upon a time, um, take somebody like Shakespeare, Shakespeare saw that disorder as the ultimate as the ultimate bad thing you know when men start to think that they're women and when women start to think that they're men you know when the when the patriarchy is inverted when peasants come to rule over kings you know all all of all of these things that were just taken for granted at as as a wisdom at earlier times in history now we're at a point where the politicians cannot even identify what a woman is. They're meant to be our leaders. They're meant to be the wise, the wise ones. Even the conception of a wise leader is something that is beyond our thinking. So the sooner that we can break the chains of that 
Boomer Truth regime, the sooner I hope we we will be able to uh, essentially just return to the norm of history, to return to just what is natural and normal and has been all throughout human affairs. Um, and uh, you know, it, in a way, what what I want is not even that is not even that revolutionary. Like, I mean, at this point, you know, at this point, I would settle for someone who is as sensible as like the average member of JFK's cabinet, right? And JFK was pretty liberal, right? But, you know, we, we were so far gone at this point that any, any movement towards normality would be, would be welcome. So, yeah. Yeah, it's... Um... I, I unfortunately have to agree agree with you. I've kind of come to the same uh, conclusion slowly by, yeah, by the same, uh, pretty much the same route. Um, so would you have any hope in a changing of the guard at elite level? Maybe not in a very explicit way, uh, but from the very top, you know, in a, in a trickle down motion. Uh, because there are a few people um, in, you know, in, in higher corners that know these things and they're starting to, to, to figure out these things. Um, and there's also the reality of, um, you know, the, the, the theory of, of liberalism or whatever, anti-fascism, uh, straining the, the infrastructure of the system. The fact that, you know, there, there will come a time where bridges can't be built, where wars cannot be won, where medicine will not function, where literally everything is going to slowly crumble. And like you said, it might lead to, to total collapse or there might be some switch uh, from people at the top realizing, okay, this is unsustainable. Um, there might also be less status to be, uh, to be extracted from, you know, the, 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 uh, the fountains of status that, you know, reside on the left right now. So do you see that as a, as a possibility that things might switch up before, uh, for the bridges collapse? Um, unfortunately, um, I feel like the, the war, the situation with Russia has strengthened, has strengthened the regime. Now this may seem paradoxical because, um, from a certain point of view, they're weakened, right? They're weak. They're, they're standing in the world is weakened. Um, it's obvious that their attempts to deplatform Russia are failing. Uh, we, we're going to have economic hardship coming coming soon because a lot of their sanctions are backfiring. Um, so, from a certain point of view, and, and it looks like the the US is going to cease to become uh, is going to cease to be the world hegemon. That that era is coming to an end. But our interest is them being our elites is domestic, right? And at home, I feel like their situation has been greatly strengthened by this. Um, one of the concepts I talk about a lot that people don't seem to grasp, that the system is very good at doing, especially in the UK, the, the, the Tory party in the UK are the, are the absolute masters at it, um, but it happens in every country and it happens in America as well, is the system is very good at containment, at, at, at being able to take your your kind of right-wing energies and redirect them to something new. And I'm afraid to say that the conflict in Ukraine and the um, the, the media operation around that um, has actually uh, done that. 
I mean, I was, I have been shocked. I've been beside, I've been, I mean, we talk about blackpilling. I mean, I would say one of the most blackpilling experiences for me in the past, um, what is it, six, seven years now, um, has been watching people on our side just fall in line with the media narrative on Ukraine. Literally two weeks after the truckers thing in Canada, the same people, the same people who supported the truckers are now calling for nuclear war and, you know, we, we must stop Putla, you know. Um, this, to me, uh, has shown me, like, how far away we are in men. In, in, I don't want to be, like, a doomsmonger, but I've, I feel like their control has been consolidated. Okay. Now that is not to say that uh, the path ahead is not without risks for them, because the 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 true test is going to be if this economic pain that we're about to experience is severe. Um, it could destabilize things to present an opportunity for them to fall and for uh, and to be replaced. Okay. Um, but I would um, I would. First of all, voice caution. Um, I said uh, I said recently on my show on Popper Opinions that I think that um, all of us should lie low for a little for a little while because the system is as more insane and more unpredictable than I have seen it to date over this over this Russia business. They've gone all in on it. That they, they, I mean, the the level of risk that they have put up. It's not just that they have, um, that they are, you know, calling Putin a bad man. They have taken unprecedented actions, you know, um, seizing central bank funds, uh, you know, lopping Russia off SWIFT, um, uh, compromising Swiss bank neutrality, um, you know, uh, re- reversing course on Nord Stream 2, which was a billion, you know, billions of dollars down the drain. Um, they have gone all in on this, all in, um, which means that they see it as an existential crisis. Now, I now I am not, like, I'm, I'm not going to say, like, I'm, quote, pro-Russia, like some people are, but I do, in my heart of hearts, hope that um, they fail in those endeavors, because if they succeed, it's going to be so bad for, for us. But even if they fail, it's still going to be bad because they're like a wild beast lashing out at the moment. Um, so we have to be we have to be a bit careful. They're going to get more censorious. They're going to get more draconian. They're going to become more totalitarian uh, in the short term. Um, so we have to just kind of uh, carry on doing what we're doing, but also try like even more than usual try to keep the eye of Sauron from, from, from looking at us because they are, they're in a strange place right now. Um, but we have to see what happens. You know, if they, there's a chance that they won't be able to weather this, but my, my instincts tells me that they've actually strengthened their position in the short term. So, yep. Yeah. I, I have to agree with you, um, on Ukraine. I mean, I've, um, recently been invited to, to speak at NatCon. Um, and I went to Brussels and, you know, there's a, it's an interesting conference. I'm very happy. I got 
very surprised that I got to speak there because I have a bit of a different angle. Um, but it went well, you know, met a lot of young, interesting, very smart, very based people and a lot of people who are more kind of a Eurocrat types. Um, and it seemed to be that pretty much everything was... Uh, was on the table there. I mean, if I could have my, you know, anti-liberalism speech there, you know, there's that that was one thing that you could question. But the position on Ukraine was always, you almost had to kind of ex- explain that, you know, we all owe a debt of gratitude to hero, <laughs> hero of the people Zelensky and, you know, all of that stuff before you made any sort of point related to that. And I am not pro-Russia. I am, li- li- Russia is my neighbor here. They're knocking at my door. My, you know, my ancestors were persecuted by the Russians. The Red Army went for our villages. Mm-hmm. We profoundly hate the Russians. But the idea that, you know, this is just some, some madman waking up one morning and saying, I want to conquer Europe uh, and that we should go to nuclear war for this that's a very different thing. And I don't think that should be a, um, you know, foregone conclusion because that's, you know, the right, uh, the right side of history. So um, it did feel to me like, okay, it's, it's incredible how fast this type of stuff happens as well. Like, you know, we, the narrative wasn't, is, is not set for a week or two, but then it's very clear what the narrative is. And that even people on our side are just, um, you know, not, not everyone actually. Uh, there was, there was a little bit of, you know, you know, maybe we should think about it. But it was very much pushed back on and it was, you know, people were almost outraged that that was even on the table, that opinion that, you know, we might, we might, you know, think about it. <laughs> it's, um, it is, it is a bit um, disheartening because um, on the one hand, you know, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, people are opening up to, um, you know, post-liberal thought or whatever I tend to represent. But uh, at the same time, like you said, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to, um, to contain um, you know, maybe post-liberalism is another thing that, you know, once they, they want to bring into the into the bigger tent to uh, to tame and contain, um, you know, I personally don't want to be the instrument to have that done. But um, I, I don't know. I don't know how much thought is in, in is in this, you know, how how, you know, I don't know, top down this all is. I'm still very confused about it. But um, Ukraine, the narrative on Ukraine, like I said, seemed to be pretty much set. Yeah, and one of the people always told me, if you have low expectations, you will never be disappointed. But it feels to me that it doesn't matter how low my expectations of humanity are, I st- I'm still so disappointed. <laughs> I never, in, they never stop disappointing me. And one of the things that gets me about this is that their trick is always the same. It's always the same play. <laughs> you know, find a guy, label him Hitler, rally the troops. You know, like, didn't we live through Iraq? <laughs> I mean, we've been through this so many times. They did it with Assad in Syria. They did it with Gaddafi. And it works every time. It's like how many times are... And, you know, you know some people... Some people say things like, well, the trouble is, is that the right is just stupid, right? The right is, well, they'll just always be tricked by, by the same play. And I hate to say it, but I'm coming to the same conclusion. There's like, what hope is there? Like there's, they never learn. They never, ever learn. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know what there is to say at this point. Um, other than, uh, other than, um, you know, you have to keep yourself sane. And increasingly the the things I look to are just the things of 
normal life, you know, my daughter going to nice parks, you know, sunny days. Um, because if you, uh, if you obsess about these things too much, you, the, the bleakness of it all has got the, has got the capacity, I think, to, you know, to start, uh, affecting your like well being. So, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I completely, yeah, I, I see, I see where you're coming from. Um, I'm probably a bit more, um, at the start of my journey being on the internet and talking about these things. Um, I still have uh, some spark, some spunk left in me, or whatever, some spark, um, and uh, in in the sense that you know I'm I'm still hopeful, you know, because things seem to be changing very fast in many ways. Some things seem to not be changing at all. Some things seem to be getting worse. So yeah, the landscape is dynamic, if nothing if nothing else, uh, and very unpredictable, uh, which can work uh, in favor of you know uh, of, of us or our enemies, <laughs> depending on what. I mean, in the it, okay, without to to try to end on a more like helpful, on a more hopeful and helpful note, I suppose. Um, the very fact that me and you are having this conversation, coming from the sorts of backgrounds that we come from, the fact that you're a woman <laughs> uh, having this sort of conversation, um, you know, this wouldn't have happened five years ago. This this conversation. Um, so, you know, slowly but surely there is something happening. There is like the, the stirrings of this fight back are there. It's just that, um, we need to learn very quickly from the failings, I think of the, of, of Trump, um, and from populism, you know, I, I, I've, I've got a book coming out soon which is like a, a version of the Foundations of Politics course. It's called The Populist Delusion. Um, and I think the important thing for us is not to waste time on things that have been proven to not work in the past. Focus on those things that do, like, either start doing those things that do work, but also, like, I mean, we can hope that Trump, for example, okay, may have learned from his experience to date. I don't know if there's much evidence of that because he should be organizing right now. He should be like all of like the Vanguard and so on should be coming from like, he has a network, he has resources, he has like a whole machine behind him. And yet, uh, I mean, last time I saw him, he was, he was tweeting about getting a hole in one in golf, you know? So, I mean, maybe, maybe Trump will never change, but you'd like to think that if, populists are allowed to get into power again anywhere that they will learn from what's happened and immediately get to work from day one doing the things that actually matter which isn't tweeting it isn't like um you know effectively shouting at the system it's like you know you've got to put your people in power you have to fire the opposition in any position of power whatsoever fucking just fire them you know, um, you have to be as ruthless as, as the enemy have been, um, and to see them as enemies. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. And beliefs, you have the right to rule, which is almost no one has. And that's the thing they, they still buy into, you know, the, the boomer truth regime. Yeah. They, they feel like, you know, the, the, it's, it's just gone a little bit too boomery. 
uh, but they're still uh, they still believe the same the same ideas. You know, who who are the real racists? We need to find out. Um, we, if we don't step away from that framing, there really is no solution uh, on the right. Yeah, I mean, if if Trump and his friends haven't woken up by now, right? We sat and watched the Supreme Court tell Texas and twenty was it seventeen other states that they have no standing. Right. They have no standing because they have concerns over the election integrity. Right. If the boomers don't see now that the US Constitution isn't going to save them and that the legal system is is not this be all and end all, right? Um, there is like there is no hope. I don't know. Vox Day talks about the day of the pillow, right? Which which is like the day that the last boomer dies. But I mean <laughs> I don't want to be too hard on the boomers because um, they were also very vocal against lockdowns and so on and are, and are some of the most vocal and organized people actually, uh, you know, at the rallies and things. It's just like, if like only we could channel that energy they have into something productive rather than like standing with placards because that's useless, you know, just do something that matters. Um and there are stirring. I mean, in America, the stuff around the, the the parents organizing to push back against CRT, for example, has been positive, right? I see that uh, guy in Florida was it DeSanctis? Um, yeah, he is. He seems to be acting in a way that suggests that he's learned a little bit from the mistakes of the Trump era. So there are signs, like there are signs of hope in America. Um, and, and in Europe, um, I, I'm a little bit more doomy about the UK because the Tory party, I mean, they've been in power for 11 years now. There's no sign of any flanking from the right. I don't know what Nigel Farage is doing. Uh, it's just hope. It's just hope. I mean, just just today, one of the most conservative MPs, Michael, uh, you know, the most Brexity, it was his name, Michael Fabricant, the, the guy who's got like a, a kind of like wig hair, you know, that guy. He was tweeting, congratulating, you know, the first openly transgender MP who obviously is a Tory, right? I mean, it's just ho- it's so hopeless. Um, so the, so the, UK, the UK is the most dire place. Um, also, I don't know if you've seen uh, Zelensky did rankings the other day of um, who like uh, the greatest friends of Ukraine are, and of course the UK was top of the list. So it's just like there is no. It's like we're in pause central here in the UK, and there's. I, I honestly think we're we're the, we're the like if the even if the pause falls, it's like London London and the UK will be like the final final kind of frontier of it the the last holdout so you know i've thought i've thought i i would i would if i was single i'd move but like you know i've got a wife and a daughter so you know you have to i'm gonna have to grind it out i'm i'm afraid <laughs> yeah i mean there's there's only a limited places left to move because uh, the pause is everywhere um it really is and uh for me, living living in London was probably the the, the most practical uh, red pill slash black pill that I've had, because London is the the aggregator of millions of strivers from around Europe. You know who 
who essentially have the same worldview, obviously, because they're all competing to, to outstrive each other in, uh, in, you know, the great, the great metropole. So, um, yeah, you know, these, it's, it's a cauldron of, of these ideas and, um, you know, people fight, fight each other onto, you know, who's, who's the most, <laughs> who's the most, uh, paused. So yeah, it's a, it's a scary place. Uh, <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, where, where are you now? Where, where are you? Uh... I live in Romania now. Yeah. So, so you 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 you've actively chose to to move from London to Romania. Yeah, the second world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's in, um, that's that's interesting because I have this theory that if we if we do live in this bipolar world coming up, that the new Iron Curtain is going to be the other way around. Like the old Iron Curtain, like people people wanted to move from Eastern Europe and from Russia into the West. I've got this vision, like in a few years' time, where it's going to be like me and Charlemagne and Aaron McIntyre and friends trying to get over the trying to get over the new Berlin Wall in Ukraine. You know, we're trying to escape into Moscow. <laughs> I, I, you know, I hope, I hope so. I mean, you know, these these areas have been um, underdeveloped for a long time for for many reasons. You know, obviously corruption, all sorts of issues. Um, they're getting better, but at the same time, you know the pause is everywhere, like the, the same mindset. And also, I mean, Romania is a kind of a, a, a special place. Poland and Hungary have different kind of um, internal coherence, like ethnic internal coherence that we don't have here in Romania. We're very much looking to Brussels in many ways and our elites especially are looking to Brussels. So um, yeah, it's, you know, it's very, very fast. The the um, Europeanization of Romania is happening fast. The, the cities obviously rural place you know that's that's fairly medieval still but uh the the difference between rural people and, and city people is huge uh and yeah they're very much um yeah they're very woke in the cities here i, um, I, I don't want to keep i don't want to keep you too, too too long but does the experience of communism not like moderate that away or mediate it in some way that's what people always say about poland it's like well these guys lived under communism and they know it sucks, so they don't want to go back there. Does that yeah. not have like some moderating effect? They don't see it as communism. They see it as, you know, free market, uh, you know, the European Union, that's the West. That's, you know, technocracy is seen as a very good thing here still. It's like the idea that you can apply management principles to politics, um, you know, compared to the corrupt uh, workings of, you know, tribal politics here. It's seen as a step up. And in many ways it has been uh, because Europe kind of has pulled us out of a lot of corrupt practices just just by the simple fact that there is some sort of oversight on what's happening. They've introduced other corrupt practices. Obviously, they have their clients here as well, uh, but they're less visible to people. So we really do think that, you know, people have made a a step up. Um, So... No, also, I mean, I I was two years old when they shot Ceausescu. Um, I barely remember what it was like. I remember transition, which is, you know, still kind of shitty, but at least the borders were open and, uh, you know, you could go buy chocolate in, in, I don't know, Hungary or or East Germany or something. Uh, And that was really interesting. Um, And then at this time, I mean, this is, you know, we have, we have a relatively okay functioning market system. Um, Yeah. I mean, people are more prosperous. Everything's getting more expensive again. You know, people are feeling like inflation's being felt really hard right now. But I think very few people have a, an explanatory framework over what's happening, um, you know, and how that 
that ties into Europe and, you know, it's, it's very much like, for example, uh, a lot of people get their news from like the AP or Reuters here. They know, you know, Putin's a bad man. So if prices go up, Putin's to blame, you know, there's not that much theory around it. Um, and that's kind of my main problem with this is that um, people tend to um, see history and then draw very bad conclusions depending on who rules them. Um, and I feel like people really don't don't understand the lessons of communism in that context. I mean, you you would need to read uh, someone like Richard Legutko to understand, you know, why this is like that. For us, it's uh, these are two very separate things, and one is good and one is bad because one is from Europe, where all the chocolate lives or whatever the products and you know the, the the progress, the technology, and one is from Russia, which is very bad. So that's about the I feel like you know kind of the instinctive level of what people think about here. No, no. D- d- so again, sorry to keep you, but no, no, um, <laughs> how many um how many like Africans and Muslims have started doing, turning up in Romania? Has that started yet? Is, so. No, we have a few students um, because <laughs> Romanian universities are very corrupt. So we we hand out medis- medical degrees like candy um, for, I don't know, $5,000 a year or something. Uh, so we have a few of those, but no, we, it's, it's just not an attractive, you know, the word hasn't gone out about the new Iron Curtain yet. But if, if it will happen, you know, uh, I think we're going to have those problems. I mean, for those um, opportunities soon. <laughs> all right great <laughs> yeah um i don't want to let you go before i ask you the question of the show everyone gets asked this question i know you probably will have a lot of answers to this but whatever uh, is uh, uh you know off the top of your head do you have a subversive thinker you know a writer could be an artist anyone living or dead um you think is underrated and that people should read more of or or, or check out a, a, subver- a, a subversive one Subversive thinker in the in the um, spirit of the show, not necessarily in the spirit of I don't know McCarthy or something. So, yes, nowadays subversive. I have to think about that. Uh, when you, when you say subversive, do you mean sorry? Do you mean somebody from the right, or do you mean somebody from the left? Oh, somebody from the right in this case, or you know, it could be somebody from. The, I mean, you've you've cited Michel Foucault as an as an inspiration. You know, a, a lefty. He's pretty subversive. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, there are there are so many um, interesting people to uh, to read. Um, let me try to keep it brief. Let me see how many I can name. I'll just name a, a load of them, and then people people can do what they usually do, which is um, they come back to me and said, "Listen, uh, academic Asian, because of you, I've spent like five hundred pounds on books in the past, uh, and I'm never going to read them all." But um, Sam Samuel T. Francis is a very good thinker. Uh, he wrote a book called Leviathan and Its Enemies, uh, which is a little bit dry, um, but it, it's a it's for me one of the one of the best books on elite theory written in the past, you know, two decades or something like that. Uh, he's he's dead now, um, but he's got lots of other very interesting books. He's got a book on. Uh, He's got a book on race. He's got a book, which is a collection of essays. He's got a book called Beautiful Losers, talking about like the failures of the of the American right. Um, he's got a book called Shots Fired. Um, and he is someone who was decades ahead of his time. Like he recognized what was happening in the culture back in like the 80s. Um, he's got a marvelous uh, essay on Martin Luther King Day. 
and how that was instituted and the truth behind Martin Luther King. Um, and I mean, just, just the insight that, um, you know, Christmas, that's up for grabs. You, you can, you can play political football with that, but no, everybody talks about Martin Luther King day with a sacred reverence. Nobody, um, doesn't understand what Martin Luther King day is about in America. Um, so, so that, that, that is a, like, he's a really good pro stylist and that, that's a, that's a searing essay, that one, if you can find it. Um, so San, San Francis is definitely one I would recommend. Uh, um, I tell you who has a, good, a lot of interesting material that, um, you don't necessarily have to agree with his worldview because he is associated with kind of harder right groups, but he has a lot of very interesting books. And that is um, Kerry Bolton. Kerry Bolton's got a book on the decline and fall of civilizations. He's got one called Revolution from Above, where he points out um, all of the kind of uh, financing and uh, Washington, Washington groups involved in Bolshevism, involved in all sorts of left-wing, uh, all sorts of left-wing groups throughout history. Um, and this is like one of the biggest things that you start to realize. Thomas 777 is the same. Showing that the, the force of the pause was never Moscow. That was a, like a Cold War CIA lie in a way. The source of the pause was always Washington. You know, they, they, they really pushed it. Um, so Kerry Bolton is good for that. He's just got a, had a book out recently called, hold on, I've got it here. Forget the name of it. Hold on, it's is called the Clear the Mount Man. No, no, no. This is no, no, no. That is Jonathan. Clear the Mount Man is Jonathan Bowden, who oh, died. Okay. Who, yeah, he died ten years ago. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you should watch all of his lectures, all of them, um, every single one that you can find, because that's an education in itself. But yeah, Kerry Bolton's most recent book was called The Perversion of Normality. Um, uh, a very good press is is Imperium Press. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah. Um, they they publish a lot of very interesting books um, that I would recommend checking out. Um, and buy buy directly from their site as well, rather than through Amazon, if you can. Um, is that enough? I, I can, I can yeah. No, of course, of course. I usually ask for one, but this is this is very this is plenty. I, Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, it depends which way you want to which way you want to go. Someone, I, someone I found a very interesting person to read was Julius Evola. Um, Evola is interesting um, because he turns the progressive view of history on its head and says, "Actually, we're in this entropic, um, we're in this kind of decline, and we've been in decline for a very long time," and how he how he kind of frames things and sees things and the importance that he gives to transcendence gives a kind of spiritual element to the analysis that is sometimes missing in somebody like Moldbug. Um, Moldbug has the entropy, right? He's got the logic down quite well. Um, but I, I feel like, I feel like he doesn't always get to the root of the issue um, which I which I often find a bit surprising because Molberg also read Carlyle. Like Carlyle was a massive influence on Molberg, 
but I, I mean, when I, even when I spoke to Molbog, I asked him like, how, how come this spiritual element, like, how come you didn't take that from him from like, that's the most important part of Carlisle. Um, I can't remember what his answer was now, but so, so I do think that the spiritual, uh, the, the perennial traditionalist thinkers like Carlisle, Evola, Gwynon, um, are worth reading. Um, although I remain, I remain trapped in my kind of cynical kind of Gen X millennial, uh, you know, I, I struggle to find like faith myself. Um, but I, I, I recognize the deep importance of it. I, I think Carlisle said the most important thing about a man is his religion. Um, and just reconnecting with this way of thinking, which again was natural and normal for centuries, is something that we should all something that we should all do, um, especially as we're about to hit uh, harder times. Uh, you need to like be able to steel yourself against the ashes of civilization, and uh, you know people like Evola will help you help you on that journey. I think to find the inner steel, to be a man among the ruins, uh, to ride the tiger, as he says. So he's another very important thinker as well. Yeah. 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 I, I, you know, another point where, uh, where I marry you, I've, I've found my faith, some of it. It is very hard to be honest after I've been, you know, steeped in, uh, in like millennial nihilism for a very long time. Um, yeah. To, to have epiphany, you know, I, I completely understand, you know, why I should have faith. Um, how, <laughs> what are the, what's the mechanics of it? Uh, and I think Moldberg is, is probably the same. I think like at heart, he's a, a bit of a, a Bay Area rationalist type, um, you know, a, a Robin Hanson with, uh, you know, more, I guess, uh, courage to read <laughs> weird, weird literature. Um, so yeah, he's, um, yeah, I think there's probably many people like this now. Um, I feel like some of, some of them are in my audience. They write to me sometimes and they ask me like, so, so how do you do it? And I'm like, you tell me <laughs> when when you discover it. Um, anyway, this was very fun. Thank you so much for for coming on. Um, you know, if it's if it's dark, it's dark. You know, it's uh, this is this is the nature of, of honest conversation. Uh, I think there there are some white pills in there as well. Um, and I want to point people towards the um, the courses that you offer, towards your YouTube channel. So if you could just let us know all the all the links, I'll put them in the show notes. But also, yeah. Maybe if, if people remember them audio, audio visually, it helps. You, you can find me on YouTube at uh, Academic Agent. You just search for it. I'll come up. Um, I think currently I've got a, my avatar is George Sanders from, originally from the film All About Eve. But over the time, people make memes and things. And it kind of morphed. But I think it's currently like George Sanders as Franco at the moment. Um, so you'll, you'll find me there on YouTube. Um, but, uh, the main, the main way I make my living now is selling courses through, uh, the academic agency and, um, the courses I write on there, cause I want to, pe- I want to offer pe- people something that they're just not going to get in universities, no matter how much money they pay. Um, so I've got foundations of economics, um, which is like a pure Austrian course. Um, uh, I've got, uh, the trivium, which is logic um, writing, writing and grammar and rhetoric. Um, the trivium was taught for hundreds of years 
um, to, you know, generation after generation of kids. And then so at some point they just stopped teaching it in our schools. You know, this was like 12 year olds who were expected to do the trivium. Uh, now adults struggle with, you know, basic logic, grammar, and uh, just even knowing the skills of rhetoric. I've even got a theory that they stopped teaching the trivium because if the population was equipped with those skills, they'd never get away with the stuff that they do, right? If you had basic training in those three areas, I mean, writing, for example, um, clear writing is connected with clear thinking. If you're able to express yourself um, in plain English, it clears out a lot of, you know, and the, the, the left get away with a lot of things through language games and through obscuring their true intentions by playing with words. Um, but of course, if you have training in, if you have training in how to spot those things, they'd never get away with it. Um, so the trivium is another big one, uh, uh, probably my best-selling course, actually. Um, and then recently I, I released this Foundations of Politics, which um, as far as I'm aware is the only course like that in the world, which is just pure elite theory. I start with a uh, Mosca. I end with Sam Francis and... We, we look at uh, Pareto, uh, Michelle's, Carl Schmidt, uh, who asked it, Juvenal, fantastic thinker, Juvenal, uh, James Burnham, uh, and uh, Gottfried. Sorry, it ends not with Sam Francis, but with Paul Gottfried, who, um, who, you, should, who you should interview, by the way, if you haven't yes. already. He's, uh, he's on my he's on my short list. Uh, I'm yeah, I can to... send him your email if you want. Yeah. Oh, really? Good. Thank yeah. you. Right. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, that's. Please do go there. Please buy Foundations of Politics, the Trivium, and uh, and all of these courses. This is a lot of, um, you know, this is crystallized knowledge that you've uh, acquired after going through, uh, you know, the, the usual channels and finding them wanting, which I think a lot of people can can use. So. Um, Thank you so much for for coming on. And oh, I, I, I should mention, sorry, I should. Yes. I'm also I'm also on Substack. I should remember because you're on Substack, aren't you? Yes, that's yes, your, I am. That's your main platform. I'm on there as well. Um, I have a. It's mainly subscriber only because I get into some stuff on there that I can't talk about on YouTube. Um, but uh, it's called the Forbidden Text. But if you search Academic Agent on Substack. Um, I have a completely separate thing on there um, where I talk a, a bit more in depth than I can uh, in streams and videos on YouTube. Um, so, yeah, uh, at one point I was the number one in the world in the in the in the category of politics and terrorism. <laughs> I, I, I'm not there anymore because I, I I didn't like the word terrorism, so I I took myself out of that category. So. But uh, yeah, that was funny. That's an interesting one. Are these these two separate categories, or is there a category called politics and terrorism? No, no it's literally called politics. I think it's called like politics, terrorism, and political theory, or something. Some weird category okay. like that. So anyway, well, yes, <laughs> please do investigate <laughs> what's uh, what's going on with the uh, with the A Substack, uh, the Forbidden Text. Is it the Forbidden Text? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Um, Thank you again for coming on. This was really fun and I hope we can do this again sometime. Great. Yeah, I should have you on. You should come on uh, my channel at some point. Okay, sure. If you like what you're hearing, 
want to see where I take it and maybe want early access episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 